take a Bible and let's uh, turn to James chapter 1. You can swipe to it on your iPhone, whatever you're using this morning. Just make sure you have a copy of God's Word before you. Uh, We're going to look at verses 22 to 27 this morning. And as you're turning there, let me uh, stop and recognize all of the discipleship hour teachers, uh, from those who led the children in DIG to the adult classes to our those who help sub every once in a while. Uh, I, I speak as an elder and as a parent uh, when I say this. Thank you for your selfless labors uh, this last year in preparation and getting here early every week uh, to, to feed the, the, the people and, God's, and, and their children God's word. We are all the stronger as a church by the example you're setting and the way you're using your gifts. Uh, I was particularly amazed this year by how many uh, of those who served in DIG either don't have children or don't have children in DIG. And you guys, you all, you get the local church um, and what it's about in terms of sacrificial love for neighbor and commitment to one another and, and jumping in to meet needs. And I'm very encouraged by all of you. Uh, this year. So thank you. Uh, One way I've been able to uh, leverage what you've taught my children this year in DIG is with all the storms we've been having lately. Uh, We had a full rainbow the other day after one of the storms, and my kids remembered that God set his bow in the sky. Um, God set that bow in the sky. He delays his wrath. And then they proceeded to jump in the water with their pajamas on. On another occasion, it gave me opportunity to talk about Jesus' words in Matthew 7, which you, which you read earlier. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it didn't fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. So our house standing after the storms became an illustration for them, one that you had shared with them in class. Kids, if you just hear Jesus' words but don't actually do them, you are setting yourself up for destruction. Jesus' words are sobering for all of us, not just for our children. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. In our passage today, James is tracking with Jesus. They are on the same page Jesus, uh, James is saying very much the same thing, that, that we cannot be mere hearers of the word, we must also be doers of the word. We ended last week on the note of receiving the implanted word. This week we look at what must characterize that receiving, namely doing it. That's the main command we'll touch on today. Be doers of the word. And everything else just builds on it and and helps illustrate it. But let's begin by reading verses 22 to 27 together. This is God's word. 
He says, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Father, I pray that you would use this word to move us to obedience, that it would become implanted in our own hearts, that daily it might transform us to abide in Christ and the will he has set before us in the scriptures. In Jesus' name, amen. One command, two illustrations, three tests. One command, two illustrations, three tests. That's how our passage unfolds. First, we see one simple command. Verse 22, be doers of the word. Be doers of the word. The the word that we must do is the implanted word of verse 21. It's the law of God written on the heart. We'll get to more of that in a minute. What's important to note now is that hearing God's word without doing God's word isn't an option. It's it's super important that we be quick to hear God's word, but never can that be the end of our receiving it. If our hearing of the word never turns into action, then we're not really hearing like the Bible expects us to hear. Anybody who's worked with children, perhaps, has experienced this. Okay, get your bags, get in the car, and let's go. You arrive at your destination. Where's your bag? I left it at home. Did you hear me say, get your bag? Yeah. But you didn't get your bag? Nope. That's not right hearing, we might say. Why? Because it didn't result in obedience, in doing it. How much more when it is God who speaks? He is creator and king of the universe, and when we hear him speak in the written word, we must obey. I remember Jason Lee preaching on on Jesus calming the storm with a word from Matthew 8. And the disciples asked, what sort of man is this? that even the winds and the sea obey him. And I remember Jason looking at us and saying, if the winds and sea obey Jesus, how about you? How about you? How about you after your quiet times? How about you after a Bible study during the week, a Sunday sermon, an exhortation from a sister, a devotional that Dale might send out on the, on the city, is it moving you to action? To hear the word of God and not do it is, verse 22 says, self-deception. That is to say, there's a false reasoning going on inside. 
as long as I'm reading my Bible regularly and going to church every Sunday, I'm okay. I'm making progress as a Christian. But James is basically saying that those things are well and good, but they mean nothing if you're not obeying what you hear. If you're, not, if, if you're merely hearing and not doing, there's a good chance that you're just faking in relationship with Jesus. If you're merely hearing but still a slave to your passions and your addictions, then you're not okay. True faith in Jesus will necessarily lead to obedience. The goal of the gospel spreading to all nations, Paul says in Romans 1.5, is the obedience of faith. The point of the gospel going far and wide is that it creates a community who are grounded on Christ by faith and who show the world their allegiance to Him by following what He says. Faith obeys. John 15, 14, Jesus says, If you, uh, I'm sorry, you are my friends if you do what I command you. This is basic to being Jesus' follower. Genuine hearing expresses itself in doing, otherwise it's self-deception. James is guarding the church from self-deception. His words guard us from patting ourselves on the back for having all of our theological ducks in a row without ever doing what God says. We cannot say that God is generous to us and then never give our money. We cannot say that God is love and then never lay down our lives for each other. We cannot champion grace and then snub our noses at others. We cannot hear that people are totally depraved and going to hell and not do something to help them hear the gospel. We can't come Sunday after Sunday. We can't go to this or that Bible study. We can't attend this or that Bible conference. We can't read the Gospel Coalition blog and attend seminary classes and download sermons for the drive to work just to come away saying, yeah, that's what I believe. Or I could have said it better than he did. We must be doers of the Word. Not just willing to do the Word, but actual doers. Of it. If doing the word is absent, we must test ourselves to see whether faith in Christ is absent as well. To help us even further, James gives us two illustrations. Two illustrations. The first illustration is of the forgetful hearer. And it's quite ridiculous. He illustrates the forgetful hearer in verse 23 as a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. Now, mirrors in James' day are not like, we're, we're like our mirrors today. Okay, they were made out of polished bronze or, or silver, and they give you a warped image at best. That's why he has to look intently into it, to, to make out what might be out of place about himself or his face. But what's ridiculous about the illustration is that even after the work of looking at himself intently, he just walks off without any change. Verse 24, For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. Ladies, how many of you look into 
a mirror and see something out of place or on your shirt or in your teeth and just walk away. Just walk away. It's, it's, a, it's just a ridiculous situation here. The, the forgetful hearer is living a ridiculous life. It's ridiculous not just because he's ignoring, he's ignoring what God's word says about what we need to change or what we need to become, but, he, but he's cutting himself off from blessing. And, and we see this in the second illustration in verse 25. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer he act, who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. So you have the ridiculous, forgetful hearer. He looks, goes away, forgets. And, you, and now you have the blessed, active doer. He looks, perseveres, and acts. The contrast is between the results of their looking. The forgetful hearer, he hears the word. He doesn't internalize it. And he's not using it to transform his life. But the active doer, he hears the word, he internalizes that word, and he uses it to transform his life. He obeys it, he does what it says, the word compels him to action, and so God blesses him. He will be blessed in his doing. And if you ask, are you saying then that God's blessing is contingent on our obedience? No, James is saying that. God is saying that. But let's be clear how he's saying it, because I don't want you to mistake this for works-based <coughs> salvation. Notice what the active doer looks into. James calls it the perfect law, the law of liberty or freedom. What is this law? And how can, how can James talk of law as liberty? Usually when we think of law, we think of constraint, burden, not freedom. What does he mean? Well, based on his use of law in chapter 2, verse 11 of law, I don't think it's wrong to say that James has in mind the Old Testament law. But I do think it's wrong to just leave it at that. To leave it at just the Old Testament law, quite apart from the revelation that we have in Jesus Christ. Rather, what James has in mind is the law as interpreted by and fulfilled in Jesus, and as internalized by the Holy Spirit under the New Covenant. I'm going to say that again. What James has in mind is the law as interpreted by, and fulfilled in Jesus, and as internalized by the Holy Spirit under the New Covenant. First off, James spoke of the word of truth that brought us the new birth in verse 18. That phrase, word of truth, is used elsewhere as a reference to the gospel of Jesus. And part of that message is what Jesus did to fulfill the law. To bring all that the law promised to its intended consummation, both in his person and through his people. Something else is that verse 21 describes it as the implanted word. And we saw last week that that's new covenant language. Jeremiah 31, verse 33, I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. Okay, So Jesus inaugurates, he, he kicks off the new covenant and the Spirit writes the law on our hearts. 
That's another way of saying that he, he gives us an, a new will to obey what God says. Also in James 2 verse 8, he speaks of us fulfilling the law through, the love, through loving our neighbor. Which Paul says in Galatians 5 is only possible in light of Christ's death and resurrection. In other words, what Christ does for us necessarily produces change in us. What Christ does for us produces change in us. And that change leads us to bear burdens with, uh, of one another. To, to love one another. To fulfill the law. What James calls the law of liberty, Paul calls the law of Christ. And then also, Paul develops this whole idea idea of liberty or freedom with the gift of the Holy Spirit under the new covenant in Christ. He he does this uh, most pointedly in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, uh, where he's contrasting the the law being a letter versus what's been internalized by the, the Spirit. But verses 15 to 17 in 2 Corinthians 3 say this, Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. There is freedom. Freedom is associated with the gift of the Spirit under the new covenant. So this is not law as burden and condemnation. This law under the new life is Christ. This, let me get that right. This law under the, is, is the new life in Christ empowered by the Holy Spirit. So let's tie these things together. You see, outside of Christ, the law is our enemy. The law condemns us. It points the finger at us and it says, you are guilty. And really the law is just exposing what God thinks of us. God is our enemy apart from Christ. God condemns us. But all of that changes with the gospel. All of that changes once we are put into Christ. And that means once we're united to Jesus by by trusting in Him for salvation. And when that union happens with Christ, the law becomes our friend because God is our friend. We have a new relationship with a father. The condemnation that his law once spoke has been hushed by Jesus dying in our place and suffering the penalty we deserved. And on top of that, Jesus rises from the dead and sends the Holy Spirit. And part of the Spirit's work under the new covenant is to internalize the law for God's people. The new humanity that God creates has a new obedience empowered by the Spirit. And the Spirit, what is He doing? He's bearing witness again and again to Jesus' finished work on our behalf. Now when we read the law in Christ, it becomes a precious gift, not a curse. Because as, as we're reading it, the law, it serves as a as a a forward-looking witness to the gospel which we're now experiencing and it serves as present-day instructions for ethics. It gives ongoing prophetic witness to our Savior in all that He accomplished for us. And it gives wisdom for daily living as it reveals what our Heavenly Father is like. And that's where freedom is found. Freedom is found in being enabled by the Holy Spirit 
to live on earth like our Father in heaven. Freedom is being enabled to bear the image of God in Christ that Adam once lost for us. Freedom is being enabled to live like Jesus, the true image of what humanity should be. And we get that freedom by God's grace in the gospel. He doesn't just give us the forgiveness of sins, He also gives us the power to overcome sinful living that contradicts His law. In other words, it's not works-based salvation if grace is behind our doing. Every act of true obedience to God's Word deserves blessing because God is the author behind it. And He is worthy of all blessing. The blessing the doer seems to experience here is the blessing of the new life in Christ. It is a blessed gift to be enabled by the Spirit to live on earth like our Father in heaven. It's, it's fulfilling. We are, we, we, through the gospel, we become image bearers as we always were supposed to be. But Adam lost for us. Everything about the Christian life in James can be traced back to one's relationship to the Father. Why? Because of what verse 18 taught us a while back. The Father is the one who causes the new birth. He puts His DNA in us. When He puts His DNA in us, we live like Him on earth, His children. We manifest His character. And that's where James heads next with these three tests. You see, at this point, we're forced to ask, well, what kind of hearer am I then? Am I a forgetful hearer? Or am I an active doer? Have I, do I know what it means for this law by the Spirit to be internalized by the Holy Spirit? And James basically gives us three tests to see how much we live like our Heavenly Father on earth. He calls it religion in verses 26 to 27. And we're all grabbing our hair, thinking about the Pharisee going, What are you doing, James? Don't you know it's about relationship, not religion? And James means it more in the sense of this relationship we have with God the Father. What he means here by religion is the outward expression of that inner relationship with the Father. So how can you tell if, if, if you're relating to the Father rightly and hearing His Word and doing His Word? These aren't the only tests, but a few that he gives to, to those who are more prone to just lip service. And he gives these three examples in particular because he's going to expand on these three examples in particular throughout the rest of the letter. So a first test is this. You will be marked by controlled speech flowing from a new heart. You will be marked by controlled speech flowing from a new heart. Verse 26. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. We spoke more extensively of this one last week, so I'm not going to belabor it today, but I do want to point out where James goes further. Notice the parallel between the unbridled tongue and the deceived heart. If anyone does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart. James is following Jesus when he says that it's out of the abundance of the heart that the mouth speaks. The tongue is a revealer of what we're like inside. Sometimes we say things that really hurt people. But then when we go to apologize, we might say something like, oh, I'm, I'm sorry, I, I didn't mean to say that. Yes, you did. 
You, mean, you meant exactly what you, you said. What comes up in the bucket was down in the well to begin with. Our speech tells the truth about the state of our soul. So if the general pattern of your life is harsh words to your spouse and your kids, if if it's full of gossip and backbiting and bitterness and criticism of others behind their backs and complaining, if it's full of cynical remarks and trivialities, you need to seriously ask yourself if you truly belong to the Father. Is His DNA in you? To go on speaking in sinful ways without any self-control while at the same time claiming to be a Christian is is to lie to yourself. If you truly belong to the Father, He will change your heart so that your speech glorifies Him. I'm not saying that you'll be perfect in everything that you say. James 3.2 is going to say, many of us stumble in many, uh, we all stumble in many ways. But there will be a marked difference. The new birth makes it inevitable. The new heart makes it necessary. We talk most about what we treasure in here. And the way we talk reveals the one we treasure. A second test. You renounce the sinful ways of the world. You renounce the sinful ways of the world. The end of verse 27 says that, that, that part of the pure and undefiled religion is to keep oneself unstained from the world. Don't be mis- mistaken here. There are many, many, many good things about the world that God made. Many. There are many things in this world that God made specifically for you to enjoy and to give thanks for and to celebrate James isn't telling you to renounce those things. Rather, James is speaking of the sinful world order. The world he has in mind is the system of evil and rebellion against God. It's the world that warps and abuses God's good gifts. It's the old, disordered world that we were once part of, but God the Father rescued us out of through the new birth and made us part of his new ordered world. That's why we, as a church, must renounce it. We already belong to our Father's new world, His new world order, His new humanity. So we renounce it. Now, to keep ourselves unstained from the world doesn't mean that we isolate ourselves into holy ghettos and homeschool huddles. All right? Church history has already shown the folly of monastic life. And the Bible makes it very clear that even though we're not to be of the world, God left us in the world on purpose. He left us here for mission and evangelism and sacrificial love toward toward the lost. To keep oneself unstained from the world simply means that we don't participate in its moral rebellion. Because the danger is that eventually we, just, we look just like the world and, and eventually have nothing to offer them really in the gospel since our redeemed life looks nothing different from, from their lives. So when the Father puts his DNA in you and you, you grow up into his son like Christ, you hate what he hates. You 
hate sexual immorality, you hate pornography, you hate injustice, you hate demeaning remarks about women, you hate your idolatry, you hate greed and envy and half-truths and fear of man, and you also love what God loves. You love the glory of Christ. You love your neighbor. You, you love all that God created good. You, you love joy and you love peace and righteousness. In other words, you, you have a fondness for all that will characterize the new heaven and the new earth which you've been made a part of. You have a fondness for, for the country that you will live in in the end. And, and it motivates you to renounce everything that's going to keep you from enjoying that country with Christ. Finally, a third test. You care for the helpless around you. You care for the helpless around you. Verse 27, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. Let's not mistake the word visit here. Just dropping by. It's not what it means. It means to go to them with the intent to help. To, to actually give them aid. To do justice for their situation. Uh, it's more along the lines of Jesus' parable of the Good Samaritan where, where we make their needs our own. We make the orphan's need and the widow's need, we make their needs our own. We, we're called to help alleviate the distress of those who cannot pay us back. And yes, of course, we do it all in the name of Jesus and, and this mark of God's people isn't unique to James. It, it's really the overriding testimony of the Bible. Again and again, the Lord commanded His covenant community to care for the poor and the orphan and the widow. Isaiah 1.17, Learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. Isaiah 58 even teaches that caring for the helpless proved whether there was true love in God's people or whether they were just giving him lip service. James is saying the same thing. Our religion is a sham if it shows no regard for the helpless. Tim Keller puts it this way. A sensitive social conscience and a life poured out in deeds of service to the needy is the inevitable outcome of true faith. Those who identify with a right-wing conservative platform should take really good notes here. And make sure that while you're fighting to protect morality in the public square, you don't forget your Christian obligation to the oppressed. True faith produces both spiritual purity and social aid. James is weaving both of them together for us right here. Now that aid for the helpless is going to look different for all of us. Each of us, is, uh, each of us are in different places financially speaking. Each of us have different margins for time because of other responsibilities God 
called us to. I'm looking at Melinda back here holding a new baby. Not a lot of time is going to go to that baby. Each of us have different gifts and abilities to, to, to contribute in, in whatever situation. James isn't saying that every person has to do everything. That's why he gave us each other. But he is saying that, every, that everybody in the church, we will collectively be marked by at least some kind of care toward the helpless. So you might be one that tackles a big project like social reform and you get involved in leading your community toward changing social conditions and structures and better police protection and establishing just and fair zoning practices. You might be one that works toward bringing a particular group of people toward self-sufficiency. That is, you're, you're not just giving them a handout, but, but actually taking the time to equip them with the skills and the resources they need to sustain their own lives. You might do those things. But far more accessible for some of you will be the opportunities that you have for immediate relief. Immediate relief for people. Stephanie Stevens has has set up an evening where, where you can put together some care packages for the homeless in the area. Okay? And, that, and that's on the evening of May 20th in the Fellowship Hall. Afternoon? Thank you. I love... Say it again. After church on the 20th. Sorry. On 22nd. See, I appreciate the interaction. Maybe we should do, maybe we should do this more often. How many other things am I getting wrong? So May 22nd, after church, in the Fellowship Hall. Thumbs up on that one. By the way, do you know we have a thumbs up on the wall back here? Do you see this thumbs up? I'm sorry, this is totally off track. There's a thumbs up right here. So, just, just saying. We can, we can edit uh, this off of the... Uh, off the sermon. <laughs> uh, thank you, Keith Beckham, for this thumbs up there. Um, Okay, where were we? May 22nd, Fellowship Hall. Sign up, bring items, and come fill the bags. All right, Gary Trojak and Wes Duggins, they also lead a group of folks that ministers to a, a nursing home every Sunday. Okay, contact one of them to go visit widows and care for them on a regular basis. World Relief is another organization that provides a great avenue to, to, to serve refugees. Uh, if you're in a place to do so, consider adopting one of the 853 children in the foster care system right now in Tarrant County. So, yeah, we, we were looking at stats the other day. These are based on 2015, but there are over 13,000 in Texas alone, 13,000 children waiting to be adopted, and there are 27,000 Evangelical, professing evangelical churches. If, if every other church just adopted one, just one. It's doable. 
We've already set aside funds to help with these kinds of costs, with adoption costs. As, as a church, you give, and part of that giving goes, part of our budget goes to ad- adoption care. So take advantage of that. Our care group has considered and are talking about what it would look like to collectively, we, we don't have a lot of money to spare as individuals, but, but collectively, our care group, can we help one of the girls in the Haiti orphanage? Maybe you can take your older children to volunteer at a homeless shelter. Or you and your wife answer phones and counsel folks at the Pregnancy Help Center. Maybe it's being a father to the fatherless ones in your care group or in your community. There are a number of ways this could happen. It's going to look different for all of us. And the, and the elders are going to be praying about more ways to help you in these, in these things. It's really crucial that the church of Jesus Christ be marked by the care for the helpless. Yes, the gospel of Jesus Christ is our center. It's what we're building upon and and there's no other message besides Christ and Him crucified. But that gospel will produce care for the helpless. And do you know why? Because the gospel is a message about a father loving us when we were helpless. That's what kind of God he is. Psalm 68 verse 5 says, Father of the fatherless and protector of widows is God in his holy habitation. This is the kind of father you have if you were in Christ. And and he came to us when we were without a heavenly father. He came to our aid when we were dead in our trespasses and our sins without escape. We had, we had no power to change our circumstances. We had no way to buy our way out of our slavery. We had no way to alter the course of our condemnation. And he loved us when we were helpless. He sent his son to die for us while we were still ungodly. He reached down while we were still alienated and he adopted us as one of his own children. And he looks on us as his beloved child, as he looks on Christ himself. And he gives us an inheritance with Jesus and every day he makes provision for us so that we make it to the end and be with him forever. This is what our father is like. And what an amazing opportunity we have as his new humanity, as the first fruits of his creation to reflect his compassion to the world. So being a doer of the word is more than just obedience for obedience sake. It's obedience to glorify what our Father is like in heaven and spread what he is like to the ends of the earth. Let's glory in the freedom of being God's children and show the world what our Father is like in speech and in holiness and in care for the helpless. And if you fail James's tests, these three tests that he gives us, repent and turn again to Jesus. He has grace that is greater than all of our sin and God will make you his own and empower you to obey by his Spirit. Let's, let's pray together.